What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Lynn Alden is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, which provides market research to hundreds of thousands of individual investors and financial professionals. Lynn's focus is on value investing with a global macro overlay, including currency differentials, shifts in monetary policy, and equity valuations. In this conversation, we discuss inflation, employment, supply chain disruptions, monetary policy, fiscal policy, stocks, bonds, commodities, and Bitcoin. I really enjoyed this conversation with Lynn, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is BlockFi. BlockFi provides financial products for crypto investors. Those products include a high-yield interest account, a U.S. dollar loan product against your crypto collateral, and a no-fee cryptocurrency trading platform. BlockFi also just released a brand new product, a Bitcoin rewards credit card. It's a normal credit card that when you swipe it, you earn back Bitcoin rather than cashback or airline miles. Normal credit card, Bitcoin rewards, no cashback, no airline miles. It's awesome. I've been using it now for a couple of months. And I got to say that not only am I earning Bitcoin back, but also there's a great feeling when you're swiping your card, knowing that it's going to end up being much less expensive than it is today. Go check it out at BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to start with that Bitcoin rewards credit card today. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Next up is Choice. It's time to stop paying capital gains taxes on your Bitcoin. And Choice is here to help. They are rebuilding the way Bitcoiners approach retirement by making it possible to invest in Bitcoin and 19 other digital assets inside your IRA. Right now, every time you make a trade, you have to pay capital gains taxes that can be as high as 37%. Choice enables you to trade real Bitcoin, other crypto, and stocks without having to pay a dime in capital gains. The best part, they just released an iOS app so you can open an account in less than 10 minutes and take control of your future from the palm of your hand. Join me and the 20,000 other Bitcoiners who have started their tax-efficient stack and open your Choice account today. Search Stack Sats in the App Store or visit choiceapp.io slash pomp. Again, choiceapp.io slash pomp. And one more thing, if you want to hold your own keys, Choice lets you do that too. So start stacking tax-efficient sats today and visit choiceapp.io slash pomp. Last but not least are my friends over at Circle. If you manage corporate or institutional funds, you're probably looking for ways to access opportunities in crypto. You see the growth and momentum and want exposure. But a lot of institutions don't know how or aren't comfortable with the risks of Bitcoin or DeFi. Now there's a new investment that's built specifically to help institutions get into digital assets. It is called Circle Yield. It's a blockchain-based investment built with USDC, the leading dollar digital currency. Circle Yield is over-collateralized and fully secured with Bitcoin collateral to protect your funds. This also makes it a great fit for crypto institutions who want to diversify their treasuries and reduce risks while staying on chain. You get your choice of terms from one month to 12 months and a fixed rate that's higher than what you'll get at a bank or in many fixed income markets. Visit circle.com slash pomp to book a meeting with one of their experts. Again, circle.com slash pomp to book a meeting with one of the experts at circle who will help you figure out how to manage your corporate or institutional funds or your treasury to earn higher yield all right let's get into this episode with lynn hope you guys enjoy this one 
Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Yesterday, 6.2% CPI. What was your just overall read? Were you expecting this high of a CPI print or did that catch you by surprise to the upside? I didn't have a firm view on exactly what it would be. So nothing between say five and six and a half percent would have been surprising. My overall high conviction view that it was going to be sticky at these elevated levels for at least at least a few more quarters, uh, because we were seeing basically, especially rent inflation and owner's equivalent rent inflation, those official components of the CPI, which are kind of like wonky ways to measure actual rent increases and actual housing price increases, those were on the uptrend. And so those were the clear drivers of, of a lot of the inflation pressures. Uh, and so I didn't have an exact number in mind, but yeah, this wasn't surprising. And one of my overall views, you know, going back over the past year was that we would get inflation uh, and that also we'd have a big disconnect between inflation and interest rates. So people holding cash or treasuries are not getting adequate amounts of interest to cover their you know, loss of purchasing power. So it's a, essentially a currency devaluation going on. Okay, so you had a thread yesterday. We're going to talk about a couple of these uh, just to start with. And the second tweet in this thread, you said it looks a lot like the 1940s. And you pulled up a uh, a chart that basically had the Fed holding the interest rates low despite the uh, periodic inflation. Um, and then you also showed the 1970s as well. And so maybe talk a little bit just about what was happening in the 40s and the 70s that uh, you see a lot of similarities. Sure. So those were the, the two inflationary decades of the past century uh, in the United States. Uh, and so in the 1970s, that's what a lot of people think of as the inflationary decade, but it's actually a somewhat less viable example here. It has some overlap, obviously. So in the 70s, you know, debt as a percentage of GDP at that point was very low. They had already inflated away a lot of debt from the 40s uh, and the 50s. Um, and so actually, you know, public debt as a percentage of GDP was something like 30%. Um, and private debt wasn't that bad either. Uh, and so overall, you had a pretty low debt environment, but you had other issues, obviously. So basically, they they had you know spent decades drawing down their gold reserves to to you know support the Bretton Woods system, which is what the dollar was pegged to gold, and they they couldn't really back that anymore. And two, U.S. oil production peaked in 1970, uh, rep- representing a real world constraint, and they had to, they had to import more of their oil, um, and so basically you had this this combined scenario where they you know they went off the gold standard. Um, so that broke the money system. Uh, and then they actually had that inflationary component of, of oil restrictions. Uh, and then also there were geopolitical issues, obviously, in the Middle East. Um, and so for a while, that was a very inflationary period. And as you can see on the chart there, the Fed kept trying to raise interest rates uh, to combat inflation. Um, but they were generally, you know, they weren't decisive with it. They were slow. They kept saying it's transitory. Uh, sounds familiar. Um, and so they, they fought this for a while. And it wasn't until the very end where a number of factors relating to demographics as well as Paul Volcker coming in and jacking up interest rates super high, he basically put the economy into recession in order to stabilize the, the dollar, the purchasing power. Uh, so that, that's how that decade went. Now, if you go back to the 40s, it was a different environment because most of the inflation was driven by fiscal spending, whereas in the 70s, it was a combination of a lot of things. It was partially fiscal spending. A lot of it was bank loan growth. Right. Whereas in the 40s, it was almost entirely gigantic war spending. Uh, and so we, we often think of war spending as foreign spending, 
but actually most of it is spending on the domestic economy. They're building factories. They're paying for GI bills. Uh, you know, a lot of the programs are somewhat similar to what we saw o- over the past year and a half, uh, but obviously tailored towards more industrial purposes. Um, and so you had this, this massive increase in the money supply from the fiscal spending, which was monetized by the Fed. And so you had, an actual, you had an inflationary component, especially because also every country in the world was trying to get as many commodities as they could, right? So there's a lot of commodity demand. Um, and so you had a very inflationary environment. The difference was that because federal debt as a percentage of GDP was 130%, they could raise interest rates to 5% or 10% or higher because it would bankrupt the government. So they, they, they had no choice. They just had to hold interest rates low despite the fact that inflation was high. And so if you were holding cash or treasuries, you just got annihilated on an inflation-adjusted basis for like, the, for like a nine-year period where they just held rates super low, even though inflation peaked at 19% year-over-year in the 40s, uh, and the overall average inflation for that decade was about 6%. And you just sat there earning roughly 0% on your T-bills and roughly 2.5% on your longer-dated treasury bonds. So when you look at this, uh, you had a second tweet that basically said this is the widest gap that we've had on record, uh, and you'd have to go back to the 40s and, and kind of the situation you're talking about there. Is your thought process that we now are entering the exact same situation where they're going to have to keep the rates low uh, for a decade or so, and we can look to the 40s as the actual guide for what to expect moving forward? Or do you think there's some similarities, but we may get uh, kind of a different outcome or a different action? Uh, one, they obviously have the hindsight of what happened in the 40s and the 70s, but also they may have some uh, some different thoughts in terms of what to do moving forward? So I find that the, that the 40s is the most instructive analogy to be familiar with. Basically, I would say it's not going to be identical to that. There are differences that I can go over, but anyone who's not familiar with the 40s is, is going to be in for a rough time, I think, and, and confused about markets. Um, and so it's a, it's a useful period to study in terms of fiscal monetary policy. So I would say in those areas, fiscal monetary policy, it's likely to be very similar to the, to the 1940s. There are some differences, and, and so obviously there's a different geopolitical environment. We're not in a, a world war. Uh, instead, there's, you know, basically spending related to, you know, uh, lockdown things and, and basically fiscal stimulus in that regard. So there's still kind of similar fiscal environment, but it's for different purposes. Uh, there's very different demographics in the developed world, right? So you have a much older population. And so some of these structural deficits um, aren't really going to go away anytime soon. Uh, whereas in the, in the, at the end of World War II, they were able to, to eventually you know, get their deficit away, uh, at least for several years. Um, and so there's differences there. And it, another uh, difference is that the United States back then was a creditor nation and a trade surplus nation. So we were like a rising power. We were producing more than we were importing. Uh, and we owned more foreign assets than foreigners owned of our assets. Uh, whereas in this period, the United States is the world's biggest debtor nation where you have a structural trade deficit. So in some ways, we actually look more like the United Kingdom looked in the 1940s, uh, meaning that we, you know, they were the existing kind of world reserve currency. They were the ones running structural trade deficits. Um, and, and, and the United States was kind of like the China back then. They were the one that were that was coming up with massive GDP growth. They were the ones, you know, making things for the world. Um, and so the, the, the roles are somewhat flipped here. So there are important differences to be aware of. I think one final difference is that in terms of the equity market, it's a pretty different environment because we went into the 40s equity valuations are very low. You just came out of the 1930s depressionary period. Uh, and then obviously the, the beginning of the war years were not going very well. So uh, basically until there were major victories in the Pacific, equities were very, very low valued. And they started to rise after that when you had these inflationary pressures. And when it, and it became increasingly obvious that the United States was going to uh, win the war uh, and, and that things were going to go you know, pretty well at the end. Uh, 
Um, and so going into this environment, obviously, it's it's very high equity valuations. And in many ways, that actually does look close to the 70s because you had very, very high valuations in the late 60s, early 70s going into that inflationary period. Um, and so that can certainly affect how equities perform on an inflation-adjusted basis between these two environments. When you start to look across asset classes, I know you've done a ton of work looking at everything from public equities to obviously uh, the bond market, uh, crypto, et cetera. Uh, it feels like uh, being invested has been the trade for the last 18 to 24 months, right? Just uh, you could almost pick any market. As long as you were investing, you weren't holding cash, you've done pretty well. Uh, how does this change as we get deeper and deeper into this? And, and it feels like there's almost this element where uh, every time we get towards a, a market correction or what could be the start of a bear market, there's just something that comes up. It's like they reach in their toolbox and whether it's uh, some sort of guidance, whether it's some sort of actual spending bill um, or, or some sort of action. And I joke all the time that like bear markets have been banned and market corrections are outlawed and like it's just everything has to go up. Is that actually true or is, is there just like some correlation between the actions they're taking and has that impact, but they will actually allow us to have kind of more prolonged market corrections and, and maybe even a bear market in uh, one of those kind of core asset classes? So I think that I think a bear market can happen, especially in in real terms, right? So obviously, if if if, if markets go flat for a decade, but inflation averages six percent for the decade, that's really poor performance in real terms. Even though we don't think of it as like a, a big market crash, Correct. for example. Um, and so I I, I kind of look towards that possibility as being somewhat likely. And there's a couple of catalysts to look for, I would say. So one is, um, you know, basically, if interest rates were to rise. Uh, that that would be very detrimental to the equity market. I mean, if, if Treasury rates uh, go up to three, four, five percent, right? That would be that'd be devastating for some of these, especially these really high valued growth stocks that are like unprofitable growth stocks that we that we were we're happy to pay ten or fifteen or more er, times earnings for, um, and times revenue for, uh, because you know basically interest rates are so low, alternatives are so low. We're betting on their future out ten years. Those if those discount rates go up dramatically. That puts a lot of pressure on those big companies, and then also including some of the big FANG companies that really kind of drive a lot of the S&P 500. So that would be a risk. Now, if interest rates stay low and inflation stays hot, that's a that's a trickier outcome. The catalyst I would look for there would be if the if the Fed uh, basically stops doing QE, uh, because QE, you know, QE is a complicated thing because the inflation we're seeing is largely due to fiscal spending and other measures, which QE supports. But QE on its own is not necessarily inflationary, as we saw from the you know the 2010s decade where they did QE, but it just stayed in the banking system because there was no fiscal uh, spending to really get that out into the, into the economy. And so instead, it just inflated asset prices. Uh, and so I would say that if you get into an environment that's, that's rather inflationary and it becomes somewhat self-sustaining with, with wages going up and therefore prices going up and therefore, therefore wages going up and therefore prices going up, if that becomes a, a more self-sustaining loop, uh, and if, if they if they slow down QE or end QE, that could be a rougher time for for equity markets uh, because you have less of that asset price inflation most likely, uh, and you still have this this underlying real inflation going on. When you think about uh, somebody like Jack Dorsey and Square, obviously they have a very incredible data set. One of the things I'm fascinated by is not only is it a data set of point of sale uh, data, but also they have everything from the payroll data uh, for uh, companies that they work with. They also have the consumer cash app. They have cards. Uh, they kind of have, in my eyes, kind of a 360 view of many data points, uh, both in real time, uh, lots of them, and across a diverse set of market participants. And so I continue to say that that is, in my my opinion, one of the most valuable data sets uh, in evaluating some of this. 
Do you have any thoughts about what the data would show if somebody could actually see that versus like the government's um, ability to collect some of this data and analyze and use like cost of living index baskets and things like that? Like, how do you think about the data we're looking at? And I use that as a proxy for if we have bad data, then we're going to make bad decisions regardless. But w w what are your thoughts on that? I think they could certainly construct a probably a, a, a more accurate or real-time inflation measure uh, in the company. Uh, I don't know if they have one, but they I think they could with their data. And it's basically it's also clear from Jack's tweets he's been looking at macro stuff. So he's he's like looking at probably like the you know the WTF happened in 1971 site. <laughs> um, he's 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 been mentioning alternative ways to measure inflation. Uh, obviously, he had that that famous hyperinflation tweet. He's been looking at at obviously some of those macro things. Uh, and so I don't know exactly what he has in terms of internal data, but if they if they wanted to construct an internal inflation measure, they could. And, and an example I use, like, so if you if you go back to that rent in, uh, inflation and owners equivalent rent inflation, so house house pricing used to be included in the inflation basket. Um, if you, if you back in like the the early 80s uh, and before then, um, and so if, if houses go up 20 percent, that would that would be in the in the CPI. Now they took that out because they said, okay, well, houses are a capital as asset. We're trying to measure consumer uh, price increases, but we still obviously, obviously, housing is a big consumer expense. So they said, okay, well, we'll we'll come up with a measure that determines basically what is the equivalent kind of monthly expense of being a homeowner. Um, and so they 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 kind of put that wonky measurement in there. And if you track home price growth compared to owners' equivalent rent growth, there's a couple things. One is that housing prices grow faster than owners' equivalent rent. So it, it's basically a way to understate inflation in some ways. Uh, and two, it's a lot smoother. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't go up and down as quickly as housing prices do in some of these big events. Um, and yet, you know, so if you look at, say, the largest owner of single-family homes in the U.S. is Inventation Homes. It's publicly traded. I believe it's a REIT structure, but it's publicly traded. And so they own like tens of thousands of single-family homes. And they, they disclose their rent increases. And it... Offhand, I, the numbers were something like 16% for, for new tenants and something like 7% for renewals. And the average was like 11% across their board for rent increases. Whereas if you look at rent and CPI, it's nowhere near that. Um, and so it's kind of coming in with a lag and it's somewhat understating it. So if Jack's looking at or if, if people at Square are looking at kind of you know, real-time data, they, they'd probably see you know, closer to the real numbers for, for you know, some of the inflation we're seeing rather than seeing this kind of laggy managed basket that that slowly catches up over time but still understates it got it and then one of the other things that i'm uh, really really interested in is as people see the higher and higher inflation number it feels like people are getting red pilled on a daily basis and uh they may not even know what inflation is uh so some see cpi some just see I went to the store uh, while we were on the show. Somebody DM'd me a screenshot of their Chick-fil-A order, and it's like $14, right? And, you know, of course, there's sticker shock with some purchases. Do you look at changing the portfolio, right? Are there things that you're tactically doing as inflation continues to not only be persistent, but actually accelerate in official numbers? Or is it, no, I positioned myself kind of Q3, Q4 last year for inflation, and now it's just playing into exactly how I've been uh, kind of uh, allocated in a portfolio perspective. So I, I've not been making many changes lately because I've been positioned for this. I made a lot more changes last year or earlier this year where I was kind of positioning for things, uh, whereas now I've actually been in a state of not, not making very many changes at all because uh, it's just kind of playing out. Um, but the, you raised an important point there of, of basically, we talked before about differences between now and the 1940s. 
And one of the differences is the speed of information. Uh, and so in the 1940s, you didn't have the internet. You you know, you got like a newspaper. Many people weren't even following the markets, obviously. Uh, uh, and so you couldn't sit there and look up, say, St. Louis Fed website to get the exact like, you know, what is inflation right now, according to the government? You couldn't do things like that. And so when they held bonds that were yielding zero to two and a half percent for a decade while inflation was averaging six percent, you know, there are obviously financial professionals that were aware of that and could and could somewhat quantify that. Um, but it's not like people on aggregate could tell you those numbers. Uh, whereas now with the Internet, with Twitter, with social media um, and, and memes that can spread information very quickly, um, you know, people like just regular regular people know what they can look up inflation. They can look up bond yields. They can look up their their whatever wage increase they got over the past year. And they can say, wait a second, I'm, I'm getting paid less than you know, my, my pay went up 5 percent, but inflation went up 6.2 percent. And that that inflation rate might even be understated. So that's not good. Or they can look at, you know, they can post their pictures of like their, what their Thanksgiving turkey costs this year compared to last year. And then it'll get a, you know, 10,000 likes and go viral. Uh, and so that that's a very different dynamic than you had in the 1940s. And so that can that can make it difficult to. You know, that, that topic is called financial repression, which is where you hold rates below the inflation rate for a prevailing period of time. And sometimes it's combined with regulations that force certain pools of capital to own those crappy assets like banks or insurance companies or pensions or other large pools of capital. And financial repression is easier when information moves slower, uh, where it's a lot harder to do when it moves at the speed of light. What questions uh, do you guys have? Hey, Lynn, thanks for doing this. Uh, so my question would just be around kind of what we're seeing in Bitcoin. I think most people look at the on-chain metrics and look really healthy and strong uh, and combined with the inflation print and stuff like that. I think most people expect over the next over the next six plus months, we'll see price appreciation in Bitcoin. But as we get closer to that 2024 halving, do you think that uh, one, I guess, will there be another kind of crypto winter where we see a big pullback? And two, do you think the idea that uh, distribution is getting tighter, right? 19 million of the 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be in existence have already been uh, put into existence. Do you think that will make that crypto winner shorter, or how do you think about that? It, it's a good question, and, and I, I've I've thought about this before, and I've 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 talked about it to some extent. So, the, I, I break it into two two parts. One is the more euphoric of a spike you get, like you had in late 2017 or, or parts of 2013, 2014, the more euphoric that spike is, the more likely you have are, are to have a crypto winner for a period of time. Um, whereas, for example, the the high we got in Bitcoin back in what was it April. That was less euphoric, and therefore the 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 pursuing kind of you know correction was was less deep, less violent, um, less long. Uh, and so I would say part of it depends on on you know how how bullish it gets in the first place. Um, the the deeper part of the question I think is that the the further we go, the having should become less important. And I think this really clear kind of four year price appreciation cycle will probably become less impactful. And you might have smaller bull markets and smaller bear markets and kind of the, the less of this kind of clear four-year thing. Because as you pointed out, you know, a, a large percentage of the coins are already mined. And the, the percentage of, of new coins coming from miners is low compared to other sources of, of supply that exist in the market from, from existing holders. Uh, whereas before, those new coins were a very significant part of, of Bitcoin, you know, the, the number of Bitcoin that exists. Uh, and so that should theoretically become less important. We're also seeing interesting dynamics where in prior cycles, 
miners were these small companies, often in China. They didn't have great financing. They would have to sell a lot of the coins that they mined to pay their bills. Uh, and so miners were regularly selling to the market. And so we considered this basically dilution. Whereas now what you're seeing is that you know as miners have come over to North America and as um, there are a number of companies, you know, uh, whether it's you know it like Galaxy or, or others, that, that that basically improved ways to lend to miners, right? So they can they can mine to them using their ASICs as collateral. Um, they they can make all sorts of different types of loans to them, and also some of those companies are publicly traded, so they have much better and cheaper sources of capital. And so they're actually able to do kind of the Michael Saylor playbook, where they they just never sell their Bitcoin. They 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 issue other types of liabilities, whether it's debt or equity, um, and that funds their operations. And then they mine Bitcoin. And some of them might have to sell a certain percentage of them. It depends on how they want to do that. But the point is, they're not selling like 80, 90 percent of the Bitcoin that they mine. And so that you know, it's not even as though that the new Bitcoin supply is really getting to the market. Uh, there's this kind of this structural tra- change in the way miners operate and their capital structures. This is even smaller private companies that are hodling their Bitcoin. Um, and again, it's partly because they have lower cost of capital um, and because after long enough time of appreciation, uh, obviously miners would prefer to hold their Bitcoin. They, they don't want to look back and be like, man, those miners from 2012 that sold their Bitcoin sucks for them, right? Like they, they want to actually hold their Bitcoin and, and basically make that a balance sheet asset in a similar way that, that Michael Saylor does with, with MicroStrategy. And so I, I think that's going to be a big theme. So when you, when you combine those things, it's, you know, there's not a lot of new supply. Some of the miners are just hodling the supply they do create. Um, and then, you know, just the fact that it's, it's becoming a more mature asset class, it's more widely held, less spiky in terms of price. It's obviously still, still a volatile asset, but it's less volatile than it was in, say, 2013. Um, I would expect kind of bull markets to maybe be somewhat less euphoric and, and bear markets to be, say, shorter or maybe less extreme. Maybe instead of a you know 90% drawdown, you have a 50, 60% drawdown like you saw this summer. Um, and so that, that'd be my base case. But obviously, you'd have to, you'd have to change based on, on what's happening in the market. John, what questions you got? Yeah, Lynn, thank you for doing this. Nice to see you again. So the stock market has been insane. It's up, the S&P's up like 25% year to date. It's at $54 trillion. It was 20 months ago, it was only at like 27 trillion. Is this sustainable? And then if not, what assets can people run to, um, to kind of hedge against all this inflation that's going on? Yeah, so this rate of, of growth is generally not sustainable, uh, at least in real terms. Um, and so when you look at, Obviously, valuation metrics were already kind of high, and now they're even higher. Now they're approaching records. You know, some of them are records. Other ones are basically records that are only surpassed by the dot-com bubble. Whether you look at price of sales, um, price price to cyclically adjusted earnings, uh, replacement cost, market cap to GDP. Uh, you know, there there are dividend yields, right? There are all sorts of of metrics to measure valuation. And so it's it's very hard for them to continue at this pace. Now they can go higher. I mean, they went higher in in Japan, for example, in the late '80s. They can get to pretty extreme levels, um, but it's I wouldn't say it's sustainable on a long term basis. If you look back over periods of inflation in the past, generally, you know, commodities and real estate is is, is a better hedge against those sorts of environments than equities. Equities have a somewhat checkered past. So obviously, in the in the '40s. They did pretty well, but that's because interest rates were low and they started with low valuations. In the 70s, they did they did about as bad as bonds did actually. So equities were were, were pretty terrible in the in the 70s, especially you know growth equities or just overall market indices. Um, and so generally, commodities and 
real estate would be, would be once. And, and obviously in this day and age, Bitcoin would be in that essentially that commodity bucket for now, where it's, it's this scarce asset that you can hold that's that's you know outside of the you know fiat currency system that's getting devalued, melting ice cube. And so you can, you can describe it as commodities, hard assets, real estate with a fixed fixed mortgage, right? Fixed 30 year mortgage is a nice thing to have. Uh, and then assets like Bitcoin. Lynn, one of the other things that uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about is from a monetary policy standpoint, the Fed uh, only has so many tools, but we also see uh, a narrative taking over um, in the political realm, uh, who is basically in some way, uh, you could argue that politicians are having a hand in uh, monetary policy. Uh, and obviously, they, they've got the fiscal policy uh, that they've more historically uh, been able to affect. How do you look at uh, the idea of the Federal Reserve or a central bank in any country being independent versus being heavily influenced by some of the social programs, the, the political uh, kind of debates that occur, etc.? So that actually goes back to another difference between the 40s and 70s and why it played out like that. So generally, the idea of independent central banking is that you're never going to have complete independence, but you want to have some degree of autonomy. You don't want, for example, the person running the Fed to be the Treasury Secretary who can you know, juice the economy six months before an election – um, or, or you know, I think maybe do the pain right after the election, right? You don't want to like do these like intricate timings uh, to to basically benefit your own party. Uh, and so the the idea of an independent central bank is that the, you know they're appointed by by administration, they're confirmed um, by by you know the the whatever governing body of the country it is. Um, and so there's some degree of independence, and then they have they have a different term, right? So so they basically. Um, you know, they, they have some latitude to make their own independent decisions that are not tied to having that, that group win or lose an election, uh, in theory. Uh, and so there's obviously a spectrum there. And so in the 70s, you had a somewhat independent central bank. Paul Volcker was basically doing a lot of unpopular things at the time. Um, and he had varying levels of support, uh, you know, from the, from the administrations throughout his, his tenure. Um, and so that was, that was an example of, of, you know, partially independent central banking. In the 1940s, basically, central, uh, you know, independent central banking goes out the window when you have debt as a percentage of GDP over 100% with massive deficits uh, because those deficits have to be monetized. Uh, and so in the 1940s, from 1942 to 1951, there was almost no central bank independence. Basically, the Treasury you know, pretty much took over the Fed, um, and they just became the de facto monetizers of 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 deficit spending. And they even did a thing called yield curve control, where in addition to just holding the short end of the rates low, they actually hard capped the long end of the yield curve too. So so basically 10-year treasuries, they said, we're not going to let these go over 2.5% interest. Um, and they, they had to buy a lot of them in order to, to keep them suppressed there. Um, that was just a stated policy. Um, and so that was a, an example of no independence. And it was funny because towards the end of that period, that nine-year period, the Fed, they, they were trying to break out of that. So, I mean, the war, you know, the war ended in 1945, and the Fed's like, so we can be independent, right, guys? And the Treasury's like, well, not yet. We need we need to do other things, too. It's kind of like that meme, like the Star Wars meme, Rannikin, like, <laughs> says something, and then and then, she, and then she's like, well, like, right? And he just, like, like looks at her. That's kind of what happened to the Treasury and the Fed. Like, they, they the Treasury just wouldn't let go. And it, was, it wasn't until 1951 that there was enough pressure to finally kind of get them separated again. Um, and so that's essentially what you get into at the end of a long-term debt cycle, where when, when debt is super high, 
and say there's high levels of wealth concentration and 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 things like that and and, and you know it, it's it's politically they have no way to like cut the deficits that's when you get that merger of of basically central bank and and monetary policy and fiscal policy so you've seen that in japan for a while now um they have obviously different circumstances they have a, they have a trade surplus uh you know current account surplus they have you know a lot of other things going for them that have kind of made that smoother than than we're seeing in other markets um, but in the United States, basically the last time we were in this situation was back in the 40s. And one more example was during 2020, during the heart of the, you know, the, the financial uh, crisis that was happening, there was even like that special purpose vehicle set up between the Treasury and the Fed, where the Fed could buy corporate bonds now. Uh, and normally they can't do that. And one of the reasons they can't do that is because they, they can't buy things that they're subject to nominal loss on. Um, so they can buy treasuries, they can buy mortgage-backed securities, um, but they can't buy, you know, like uh, a corporate bond because theoretically the the company can default on it, and they, therefore they would have a nominal loss. So instead, um, basically the, the the fiscal side had to authorize uh, basically a backstop as part of one of their bills. They said, okay, here's X number of billions of dollars to cover any losses that the Fed has buying corporate bonds, and then they set up a special purpose vehicle. Which was like a separate balance sheet, so the Fed didn't technically put corporate bonds on its own balance sheet, so it, it kind of bought them into this other basket, um, and then had that had that backstop from Treasury and Congress. Um, and so that was an example of a, a, a you know a closer unification between them that we that pretty much that we've seen since the 1940s. Got it. And when we go looking forward, I I think that uh, you've got a very unique perspective on a lot of kind of what's happening and what has happened in the past, which I appreciate. What are you looking for as we move forward in terms of either milestones, uh, certain developments, certain key decisions? Like, are are there things where you're like, okay, I'm going to really pay attention to this because that'll have an outsized impact on how this unfolds? I would say two areas. One is uh, watching fiscal very closely, right? Because uh, this is a, a very fiscal heavy environment. Uh, fiscal spending is driving uh, a lot of inflation. Um, and so I'm kind of watching to see what happens there. I, if you get fiscal gridlock, uh, you're more likely to get a period where inflation levels off for a period of time, or at least you know, with, with some delay. And so if you go back and look at those 1940s and 70s charts, it, was, it wasn't like inflation was a straight line. There were, there were rises and falls in inflation throughout those periods. And so I would expect the 2020s to be the same way, where you, know, you get periods of inflation, and then you get some sort of cool off period, and then maybe you get another round of, of inflation with there's another fiscal response. And so these these things kind of come in cycles. So I'm, I'm kind of paying attention to the election cycle to some extent. I'm looking for signs of gridlock. I, I'm looking to, to see probabilities of certain things passing because that affects my view of inflation, nominal GDP growth, things like that. The other thing I'd be looking for is if inflation becomes more self-sustaining in terms of wage that wage price spiral where we're, you know, prices to go up, you have to, you know, workers demand higher wages uh, to, to be able to make a living. Uh, and then therefore when their wages go up, their employers have to raise their prices on a lot of their goods um, to, to make up for that. And then that leads to more wage pressure. Um, and so if that becomes somewhat self-sustaining, then you can get inflation, even if, even if fiscal stimulus kind of, you know, goes dark for a couple of years. Um, and so those are probably the two things I'm watching uh, in addition, I'd pay attention to the Fed's balance sheet. Um, so right now, they're planning on tapering their asset purchases, meaning they're still buying them, but they're planning on gradually slowing down how many they buy over the next six plus months. And if they 
if they're able to get through that and they eventually just stop increasing their balance sheet for a period of time, that could be more challenging for equity markets. Uh, and so th- those are some of the things I'm watching, I think, pretty closely uh, overall. And when we start to look forward, um, it, it also feels like uh, companies are going to start having to make some decisions here. Obviously, Michael Saylor has uh, outlaid uh, an idea in terms of that corporate balance sheet. As you look forward at those uh, different events, do we think that corporations will start to act much more like macro uh, traders to some degree and start having to do things other than just hold cash and cash equivalents? Or do you foresee a world where uh, it's hard to kind of move the ship? It's hard to kind of you know uh, uh, get them to turn and change strategy? strategies and uh, maybe they should or maybe they shouldn't, but we, we shouldn't expect any sort of change on a material basis uh, across the public markets for treasury management. I think it partially depends on one is how, how smart the company is, uh, how much, you know, basically power the, the CEO has and how kind of connected that company is. Right. So an example of micro strategy, you know, he, he owns the I think the majority of the voting rights, he's obviously, he, he knows exactly what he wants to do. Um, he still, he still has a board he had to work with, but he basically had a lot of influence over that company and was able to get on it quick and in a big way. Right. So all in and early, uh, and it paid off, it paid off, you know, substantially. Now, if you look at other companies, they can start putting Bitcoin on their balance sheet in a smaller way. Um, and I think it's the closer they go to being kind of politically connected, the harder it gets. So you'd have to ask yourself, why why have an Apple or Facebook or Google put a billion into Bitcoin, right? I mean, it, it'd be trivial for them. They have they have billions and billions and billions of cash in the balance sheet. Some of them have over a hundred billion dollars. Why not put one or five billion into Bitcoin? Um, and I think you know it's hard to say for sure, but I think partially that would spook Congress, right? So if you start to see Google announce a, a five billion dollar Bitcoin purchase. Um, they might get looked at more, whereas a smaller company doing it gets less scrutiny. Um, and so I think it partially comes down to how kind of you know tied they are. And then two, just the makeup of the board of directors, uh, the makeup of the shareholder base, the, the CEO, right? So if, if we keep entering this period, the longer we go with cash and treasury yields held below the inflation rate, you know, the, the smarter companies should increasingly want to, to put their resources into other assets. So basically, Facebook and Google holding hundreds of, you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars in, in cash equivalents in this environment is a melting ice cube. Um, and it, it depends on the company. So for example, Apple, they have a lot of cash, but they actually also have a lot of debt. They issue a lot of debt to buy back their own shares with. They kind of, they change their capital structure like that. So they're, they're somewhat neutrally positioned in this inflationary environment because their debt's getting inflated away, but also their cash is getting inflation, inflated away. Whereas a company like Facebook, which has like no debt and is like tons of cash, they're they're just entirely getting inflated away in this environment. Uh, and then Google's more in that position as well. So really Alphabet, it really comes down to the specific company in question. The ones you'd want to look at are ones that just have tons of cash uh, that, that exceeds their debt and they're just they're just sitting there getting inflated away, and you have to ask why not put at least some of that into into Bitcoin. I completely agree. Before I let you go, help everyone understand the research that you do. I just dropped the uh, in the chat uh, a link to uh, LynnAlden.com where uh, you publish a bunch of research. But uh, help everyone just kind of understand your process, and then uh, if they went ahead, they signed up for uh, the newsletter, which I think is fantastic. It's uh, I don't know if I should say this, but it's the only uh, macro newsletter that I read uh, top to bottom every single time it comes out. So what, what is the process and kind of what do you spend a lot of time thinking about from a research perspective? Well, I appreciate that. So I, I basically have three types of content, really. So one is that I put out public articles 
um, that just touch on a subject, uh, basically goes into detail on something that, and those are meant to be kind of evergreen. Like you can go back and read them two years later and they're still pretty much relevant. Then I have uh, those free newsletters. They come out every six weeks uh, and they generally talk about something a little bit more topical. Uh, they might include, they generally include some evergreen content in there as well, but it generally ties it more into what's happening now for the next six months, next year. Um, and th so those are, you know, more timestamp type of pieces. Um, and then, and then, so that's all free material. And then I have a low cost research service that comes out every two weeks. And, and I've, again, focus on tactical stuff, more specific investment ideas, things like that. And so generally all my research kind of focuses on that blend of macro. So what, what's happening, the big picture, right? So what's happening with things like inflation, disinflation, growth, stagnation, um, overall asset classes I'm interested in. That's kind of the big picture view. Uh, and also what, what country markets I might be interested in more than others. And then the, the micro view is, you know, what's happening with technical sentiment? What's happening with these weird things in the market? What's going on with reverse repos right now? What, what investments look interesting? What, what is showing signs of maybe having bottomed and is cheap? What is showing signs of being maybe really expensive and kind of topping out? So that, that's kind of the more tactical stuff I go into after I already kind of have a big picture idea in mind. Got it. You guys got any other questions? No, appreciate you coming on, Lynn. I always learn so much when you do. Any, Thanks for having me. A, a, anyone who uh, who is not following you on Twitter or subscribe should absolutely go do it. So listen, Lynn, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I wish that I could say uh, inflation is over and we're not going to be talking about this anymore, <laughs> but I feel like we will do this many more times again. So I appreciate you, uh, you taking the time to come on here. Yep, thank you. All right, awesome. See you later.